Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Highball Politics, what America's bartenders are hearing. This podcast is a bar crawl around America to find out what real people around the country are saying about hot political issues and culture. I'm David Kochel, longtime political consultant and veteran of six presidential campaigns. And I'm Rob Stutzman, political consultant based in California, once worked for a governor named Schwarzenegger, but more than that, Kochel and I are best friends and have drank together in a lot of bars across this glorious country. More than I can count. That's right, Rob. Each week, we'll interview a bartender in a different U.S. city and state to find out what people there really care about when it comes to politics and culture. Why bartenders? Because bartenders have the pulse of their patrons and therefore the pulse of America, real America. When Kochel and I fly into a city to work and we want to know what's on people's minds about politics, culture, and pocketbooks, we do the only sensible thing and find a bartender. And to kick things off, we'll find out what drink the locals are ordering, get the recipe, and knock back a few while we chat with our guest. You can find the recipe for each week's cocktail in the show notes. And I can tell you, some of these will be amazing. If you decide to make this week's signature cocktail at home, please share a pic on Instagram or tweet about it with the hashtag HighballPodcast. And if you're a bartender or you'd like to nominate your favorite bartender to be on our podcast, please email us at HighballPolitics at gmail.com with the name of the bartender in the bar and why they'd be perfect for our show. Today, we're talking with Jose Maella, who is owner of the Bisting Bay Brewing Company in Miami, Florida. But before we chat with Jose, let's get a bit of context of what's been going on in the news and why Florida is important to what's going on right now in American politics. Florida, 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 Rob, that was the refrain from the late Tim Russert in 2000 during that historic election. Obviously, the election went to the Supreme Court. Al Gore and George Bush were mere votes apart in Florida. For years, it's been the ultimate swing state. It's gone back and forth. But what happened? Ron DeSantis won by half a point in 2018 and nearly 20 points in 2022. Donald Trump won it twice on the way to losing the popular vote by over 7 million people. What's changed? We'll ask Jose, who's not only a bar proprietor and brewer, but also has a lot of experience in politics. Full disclosure, I worked with Jose on the Jeb Bush campaign in 2016. He's a great guy. And Rob, we've had a number of episodes featuring a bar in a bright blue city in a deep red state. This one might be a little bit different. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Miami is a fascinating, unique place. It's one of the most rapidly changing cities in the United States. And yet, when we think about Miami and Florida and politics, we a lot of us still think about hanging chads, even though that's nearly 24 years ago now, going on 24 years ago. So it'll be interesting to kind of get this update on the fresh perspective of what is going on in Florida and why it's different than other places in the country. Well, let's go. Welcome, Jose Maya from Biscayne Brewing Company, Miami, Florida. Hello, my friend. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to Highball Politics. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, it's excited to be here representing Biscayne Bay Brewing Company. 
All right. So Miami, this is our first trip to Florida with the podcast. Tell us a little bit about the brewing company, the history of it, pending locations, all that. Get us up to speed. So, you know, Biscayne Bay started, we opened our doors or started brewing beer in 2014, almost 10 years ago now. It seems crazy. But I, I had a passion for craft beer. I had opened a restaurant in Coral Gables, did well, gastro pub, successful gastro pub. Uh, one of the first places to really lean into the craft beer movement, as well as the craft cocktail and the mixology space. So, you know, I like to think of us as pioneers in that world, even though this was booming everywhere else in the country, Miami tends to be a little bit late when it comes to these kinds of trends. And I had moved back from DC, loved drinking craft beer, couldn't find a place where I could enjoy one. Right. And, and so I figured with a good buddy of mine, who was a contractor, we're just going to build our own awesome spot, ran for 10 years. It was called the local craft food and drink. And about three years into it, I was like, man, there's no great local craft beer. We had a couple from the mid middle part of the state, you know, Cigar City from Tampa, awesome brewery, still around. But back then they were one of the few Florida breweries that were doing great beer, Funky Buddha up in Broward. And so by the time we opened, two other breweries had opened up, but we were still young. Think about it. Miami, a city of more than 2 million people. And by the time we opened, we only had like three craft breweries. Today, I'd say Miami has total, including some very small ones, probably around 12 to 15. Still not many, yeah. Um, really. Yeah, the national ratio, I think it's like it's like one for every 80,000 people. Some states, like uh, Oregon, Washington State, even Colorado, it's like one per 30 or 40,000. But here in Miami, it's like still one per 150,000, right? So there's still a market, I think, for people to come into craft. But, you know, we can talk about that, spend the whole show talking about that. But that has to do with Miami still being very, very much a liquor forward town. It is a liquor town, right? <laughs> For all sorts of reasons, the nightlife dynamic and just the cultural dynamics, people love their rums mm -hmm. or their scotch. Anyway, so yeah, so we opened in 14, in 16, got our ta first tap room open out in Doral Warehouse District. That was a ton of fun. We did really well out there. And then around 2019, we decided we wanted to start a new project, open in the heart of downtown Miami. We found a historic building, downtown Miami, like so many downtowns that were abandoned for a long time. The downtown that benefited a little bit from the real estate boom in the in the late 2000s, but it never really stuck the, at the street level, right? So you still had a lot of old places, not a lot of offerings, and some new leadership came into the city and changed some laws that allowed for bars. Bars used to be not permitted within 500 linear feet of each other. Think about how crazy that is. A bar, you can have restaurants, just not a bar. They got rid of that, and that allowed for bars to open up. So now you have some really fun bars in downtown. Within walking distance of the brewery, there's at least four right now. Hopefully there'll be another five or six in the next six months. And so we started that project, Pandemic Kids, tough project. We're in a historic building in the third floor of what's a beautiful hundred year old building, which for Miami is ancient. There's nothing that old here. Everything that was old got demolished and new skyscrapers it up, but it's gorgeous, historic old federal building. And we've restored our space. It's going to be an awesome location. Hopefully by the end of June, our doors will be open. And anyone who listens to the podcast, Looking forward to having you come by. That was a Miami-only regulation? Because, like, I think about South Beach, there's a bar every Yeah, Miami. Lots. Yeah, it, especially in downtown. It was just something old. And some of that stuff stuck around from, like, the Prohibition days, right? Like, there are buildings across the street from us where we hear, you know, local historians. I hear them on tours talking about how, you know, Al Capone used to have a clandestine card game in this building. I'm like, really? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, right here. In the, and the cupola of this old, beautiful building. I'm like, goodness, you can imagine there was a moment in time where there was probably a bar or a speakeasy or something happening in those old downtown Miami buildings, right? Probably on every block. And I think probably as a reaction to that and other changes that went on in the city, they passed these laws that were restrictive of the alcohol industry. 
And then now with all the changes that have gone on with residents coming back and wanting to bring more of an experience at the street level for the local residents coming back into the inner core of the city, they decided to make these changes, which we decided to take advantage of and, and jump right in. So it will be the first brewery in the part of downtown Miami. We have breweries in what's called Wynwood, which is a really fun artistic area that's really blown up over the last 10 years. It used to be the artist's warehouse district. Now it's like the startup tech hub. They priced out the artists, so they've moved to a new neighborhood, which we're actually looking at to maybe open a brewery there. We're sort of right next to the part of the, like the urban part of downtown that's being restored. And then right across the water from Brickle, right across the river from Brickle, which is where all the fun residential towers are at. David's familiar with Brickle. I was living there during the uh, the old Jeb Bush days. Yeah. That was a half happening part of Miami. Great restaurants, I'll tell you. Amazing restaurant scene. So at the top here, we need to get your signature beer. We usually do signature cocktail. You're into the brewing thing. Tell us about your Tropical IPA at Biscayne Bay Brewing Company. It's a great beer, our Tropical Bay IPA. It's actually one of our newest beers, I would say, because we actually made that beer. We opened in 2014. We didn't make that beer until the summer of 2019. And we waited a long time to make an IPA. We had started our brewery, wanted to make classic styles, right? That's another thing. Like there were a lot of folks making funky beers with fruit and all sorts of stuff and bacon and chocolate, which is cool. <laughs> I'll have one of those beers from time to time. But there was no one making a great classic lager. And I know that sounds boring, but I love a great German or Czech pill. I love a great porter. There was no one making a great porter. So we decided to make an amazing porter called La Colada, which resembles like Cuban coffee, but uses specialty malts to, to give you that flavor. Wow. I have no coffee in it. There you go. We decided to do a double IPA using... You know, single malt scotch, right? So we use Glen Eagle Maris Otter, the same scotch that you use to make single malt. Single malt scotch, single hop beer. It's phenomenal. That's our double IPA. And then we did a pale ale, Miami pale ale. Very refreshing, very light, but not too bitter. And I just wasn't wanting to get into the IPA craze. Well, eventually we did. And Miami pale ale was our number one seller for all those years. Within six months, Tropical Bay IPA became our top seller. Miami pale ale is still our number two seller. They didn't lose its market share, just didn't grow. But Tropical took off and, you know, it, it really opened a lot of doors for us. It got us into Publix, which is the big uh, supermarket chain down here that we're distributed in. Yep. The Publix is from Key West up to St. Lucie. And then we have beer up in Jacksonville, some beer in Orlando, beer, a little bit of beer on, on the West Coast. So I'll tell you, I'll describe the beer. It's like biting into a grapefruit and orange. It's like it's very citrus forward. We do a lot of dry hoppies with a, a hop called Mosaic, which is for the Pacific Northwest. It's an amazing hop and it just gives this incredible aroma and then we add some really fun hops to create that balance of tropical flavors and that's why it's a tropical ipa it's a little hazy not too hazy so i wouldn't call it a hazy ipa which is like that big northeastern craze those very chewy beers that you drink them and you can kind of chew on the hops almost so this tropical ipa has a little bit of that character but it's not as hazy and it's got a tremendous nose what really distinguishes it is when you smell it it really hits you you're like wow that is a tropical it's a tropical beer so, so the the market demanded an IPA yeah. and you have met the dial and the market demanded it. And even though I was being a baby and not wanting to make one, you know, all my sales team, our distributor, our accounts were like, man, we love your beers. Well, why would you guys make an IPA? And they're like, talk to the owner, talk to Jose. <laughs> I'm like, why would I make one when I could drink so many other ones that are great? And I take this seriously, right? Like, I, and I have tremendous respect for a lot of breweries with their vision. I think no two breweries are alike, right? No matter where you go, they could be right next to each other. They're not the same. But there are a lot of folks who just go make IPAs and throw a bunch of hops and there are these hop bombs. And then there are some that are just phenomenal. And I love to drink those great IPAs. I was like, look, 
if we're going to make one, we're not going to make it day one. We're going to make it five years in when we perfected our systems, when we got our quality know control what you're in place. Yeah. We know what we're doing and we're going to make an awesome one. I hope that's what we accomplish. You have a beer hall at the Miami Marlins games at the stadium. How much of like the out of town crowd come in to watch their, you know, their Cubs? You know, maybe yeah. the Dodgers, maybe probably not the Dodgers. Let me tell you, the Cubs fans are a ton of fun. We get some Dodgers fans too. The the biggest crowd tend to be the Mets, obviously with all the New Yorkers. When the Yankees come into town as well, the Cubs games, and then there are some teams like Cardinals fans. They travel the beer hall. Kudos to the Marlins for taking a leap of faith with us for saying, look, we want to be partners with a local brewery that's independent, right? We're not owned by one of the big multinationals, by Budweiser, by Miller Coors, by any of those guys. We're an independent brewery, and that's really hard. Like, you go to most ballparks, if you see any presence of beer, even the ones that you think are local, they're not. They're owned by right. the Long and Andy National Breweries, which is fine. Like, no problem with them. But the Marlins said, look, we want a local brewery that represents Miami. They then took a bold step and said, we're going to build a beer hall in this huge concourse area right above Old Plate. They did an amazing job kind of honoring our brand and really having a great venue. So what's cool about it, it's open, I think, two hours before the game starts. It's the only place where you can go have a beer after the seventh inning stretch or alcohol as well. They have some alcohol there as well. And you're so close to the game that you still feel the game. And they have this amazing jumbotron. So there are a lot of folks who go to the game and they'll watch it from the beer hall. Right? They can still go to their seat. <laughs> but that's the cool thing about baseball. You can go to it from your seat. You can walk around, go to the beer hall, go back to your seat. So there's this really great flow of fans coming through. While those out-of-town fans tend to be the first ones there on those games. And then it stays open an hour after the game. So fascinating. We, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about what people say because we're always interested in patrons. And you've got an old location. you got the stadium. you got new location. You've, I'm sure you've got regular customers. Give us a sense of, you know, what do you see reflected back in your time there from, particularly from a patron perspective, of how the city has changed and maybe some of the politics in the city. We'll go up to the state level in a moment. But let's talk yeah. about the, the politics in the, in the city of Miami a little bit first and what people are saying. Miami's an amazing city. Like, uh, this is home for me. I lived in D.C. I came back. It was still a very young city when I came back, and it's still relatively young. Miami's 125, 26 years, right? We just had our 125th anniversary a couple of years back. So, like, young city compared to New York, Chicago, cities that are 200 plus, 250 years old. So, it's still growing. And I used to say that back in the early 2000s, that it was a young city, a little bit like a, like a frontier town where you can go and you can take a risk and yet, you know, people migrating from all over the world, especially Latin America, predominantly in those years. Today, Miami has, in, in those 15 years or even in the eight years of the breweries that opened, it's completely changed. Like our migration now is global. Like we have people here from all over the world. I did consulting work for a number of years and I still do some of that. And I've had clients from Singapore, from Europe, from the Middle East folks that are doing business here, investing in projects and still from Latin America but from all over the region. So it's this fascinating mix of people from all over the world. And then domestically, because of a lot of political turmoil in some big cities all over America, we've had people that decided, hey, I'm an engineer and I've lived in San Francisco for a long time, but I can work from anywhere. Miami is affordable. My children don't have to be worried about being assaulted if they're walking in the street or things of that nature, right? And they, they still might love those towns that they came from. And I think some of that has to do with local policy. You know, Florida is a state, there is no payroll tax. So you don't have to pay payroll tax. That's a huge benefit to anyone who's trying to, you know, keep more of their dollars. The city itself has kept 
property taxes very low. And they've also been very smart and very thoughtful about policing, right? Like they've invested more in policing when there was this national movement about cutting back funds to police. And Miami's a city that's had a complicated history in that space. Like we had riots in the 80s, right? Because of actions by police. So for Miami, that wasn't a new thing. We had learned some pretty terrible lessons from the 80s and the 90s in the city that, you know, the way that Miami Police Department polices is different. A lot of community policing, a lot of recruiting from the community, from the neighborhoods. In fact, one of our most successful officers who started in the force when he was 17, he was actually recruited away. He was, uh, I believe, a captain at the time to go be the police chief in Ferguson after the incidents in Ferguson. Dorish mm-hmm. Moss, wonderful guy. He's now back in here in South Florida with another department, but that level of talent was here and that level of investment in law enforcement was here. And so Miami for the last year had the lowest homicide rate for the city of Miami that it had had since like the 50s, right? Since they started keeping stats. So all that was down. And at the same time, you have a mayor who does an amazing job. You know, Mayor Francis Barr young guy, generational mayor who goes out there and sends out a tweet that says, how can I help the folks out in the Valley, in the Bay Area? They put up billboards that say, call me, you know, and he literally started getting people calling him. Now, founders and investors and private equity and all these folks. And suddenly they come. But, you know, one of the criticisms from that is, well, you're only bringing these wealthy, high net worth folks who can move. Well, guess what? Every time one of those offices open down here, they create a lot of mid-level paint and better paying jobs, right, than Miami's had in the past. So it's a pretty exciting moment. So Mayor Suarez, he's Republican. One of the few big city Republican mayors. I mean, how, how does he do that as a Republican in a big yeah. city? So Miami's politics are interesting, right? Like Miami is a big city, but we still have a very strong Cuban-American contingent that votes very strongly Republican. And so he's a Republican born in Miami. I think he's the first mayor to actually be born in the city. His dad was a previous mayor of the city of Miami. I'd say the, the registration of the city is probably matching almost identical, the Democrat and Republicans, but the Republicans tend to overperform in those elections. But he's also done a lot of, of work in reaching out to the African-American community, to all sorts of other communities. It's an interesting place where people respect each other. Whatever your point of view is, look, that's fine. We respect it. We can agree to disagree about politics or whatever social issue you might have a perspective on. But people live comfortably with each other. And I think that's what's drawn folks from cities like San Francisco and New York, right? I was talking to a guy recently who's from San Francisco, spent his whole career up there. And he's got a very different point of view politically than me. And I'm like, well, how's it been for you, right? We're, we have mutual friends. We're hanging out, drinking beer. And he says, man, you know, I was worried when I was coming over here. I was only going to test it for like a month. I thought I was going to be uncomfortable, that I wouldn't feel welcome. Me and my partner were worried. We said, look, we're not going to unpack in case it's... And they love it. They're like, we love it. We're like the biggest champions out there. Living Pope Coconut Grove. They have a great life. They're like, we're calling our buddies out there. It's like, you got to move over here, man. This is not what you... What do you think it is? It's a great place. We get the benefit from low taxes and all this other stuff that's going on. But that's not the narrative Governor Gavin Newsom keeps telling everyone about California and Florida. (laughs) You got to live it. You got to come see it. Come touch it. Rob, to prove I did my research here, the original Mayor Suarez, Francis Suarez's father, who was mayor during the 1980s, if you guys remember uh, Miami Vice, saw that. He actually had a contract out on him by Pablo Escobar. Am I right about that? That's true. Alexander had a contract out on him, man. Hey, he, uh, he's a tough cookie. Even today, like, he's still acting. He was a county commissioner until recently and one of the smartest leaders I've ever met. I've got to work with some amazing people, but he is a Harvard law grad, an engineer from Villanova, played basketball there in Villanova. But yeah, he did have a contract out on him by Pablo Escobar for being a part of that war on drugs. Yeah. 
Crockett and oh, Tubbs were never going to let anything happen to him. No. I mean, they had. That's right. You yeah. know, a couple of guys that just like that would take care of back in the day. Let's talk a little bit about Florida. It's on a lot of people's mind. Obviously, you've got, uh, you know, as a former, really the ultimate swing state in presidential politics, been represented by Republicans for quite a while. I'd love back to our old friend. Jeb Bush. But it's really changed the last couple of cycles. You had Trump winning it twice by more of the second time. The first time, Ron DeSantis in 2018 wins by half a point. I mean, a super close race. Wins it by 20 points uh, yeah. last November. This governor's race. What accounts for this, what appears to be a big move, and we don't know how permanent this move is. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of other politics coming in the AC with, you know, race in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court race, the the abortion vote in Kansas, you know, there's Democrats have got some glimmers of hope out there too, but tell us what's happening kind of statewide in Florida, why it's, yeah. it, it appears to have trended so hard to the right in the last couple of cycles. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like in politics, like you just said earlier, things move quickly, but at the same time, certain change comes about at a slow pace and you see it in increments, almost like in business, small increments, small increments, small increments, and all of a sudden, boom, it just takes off. Right. So I'll give credit to our dear friend, Governor Jeb Bush, who started this movement in 1994 when supermajority Democrat in the state house, in the state Senate, and all the whole cabinet, right? And so he takes his bold position to run against Lon Childs, who was a beloved governor, the old hikun, right? Old school Florida and a very blue dog Democrat, right? Yeah. Uh, an appeal across the aisle, a brand of politics you don't see anymore, right? And, and so that was what you had a lot of in Florida and Tallahassee. So he starts planting these conservative seeds in the in the mid nineties, wins in ninety-eight. In two thousand, we had a similar turnout, but yet we still had a razor thin election. And the turnout being being here in Miami, right? That uh, he President Bush was the last time that someone got as close. Or actually Trump exceeded that in twenty twenty. Anyway, so that starts to bring about a slow movement of cabinet members. Then Governor Bush's Succeeded by Charlie Chris, who was actually at the time even more seemed to be more conservative than the governor. So it was politically expedient for him to until <laughs> he was done. A different story, though it wasn't. Yeah, and, but that just continued, right, Scott? And then Governor DeSantis. So you kind of got to give all those folks credit, but it, I think it starts to really ripen and culminate with the 2016 election. Right, like in 2010, I was involved in Marco's race, and people will talk about how that was the birth of like the Tea Party movement here in Southwest Florida, right? Some rallies that took place on tax day that were called Tea Party. That was the first time I ever heard the term. And the next thing you know, a year later, Tea Party, Tea Party, Tea Party all over the country. And next thing you know, that kind of evolving into the 2016 uh, presidential race and the victory for, for Donald Trump, which here in Florida, you're right, he won a close race, but still comfortable. Then Governor DeSantis has a razor thin race. And then I think after that, it just it just catapulted. But you can't take these things for granted. I think the problem we see in politics, and this is not a Republican problem or a Democrat problem, is when we have this kind of success or when a party has this kind of success, then they tend to neglect certain things. They tend to forget about what got them there. And they really focus on maybe, you know, appeasing some of the fringe elements of their base. And that then creates the boomerang effect to kind of go the other way. So that would be the the only caution I would have for our leaders here in Florida is let's just be mindful of what got us here, focusing on economic growth, keeping taxes low, drawing business, being a great place to live, to work, and to play, right? Because that's always been a, what Florida's known for. So we can stick to those core values. I think we'll, we'll have a lot of success for years to come. So Florida, you have the two front runners for the Republican nomination are Florida residents. I mean, Donald Trump. People's minds as a New Yorker, but he, he lives in Florida. <laughs> he's, yeah, or he's, yeah. he's taken refuge in Florida, as some may say. 
And then, of course, you have you have Governor DeSantis. And it's interesting now how some of this starts to play out, right? So DeSantis had this very impressive reelect, much wider vote margin than Trump won, you know, Florida by on either election in 16 or 20. But this week, a bunch of the congressional delegation from Florida endorsed Trump over DeSantis. And yeah, there's some are starting to talk a little bit of smack about DeSantis. And yeah. so it's interesting to watch this play out. But as a man in tune with his customers who delivered them a tropical IPA when they demanded <laughs> right. What's your sense there, like, of the community, how they just kind of view this really now, what has become a, you know, a mano a mano race, because Trump has that, you know, PAC has ads up against DeSantis. Yeah. It's gotten kind of nasty. What What's their feeling with between these two guys? Where's the loyalties lie? They just re- re-elected DeSantis huge, but are they ready to go there for yeah. president? These guys are, are slinging pudding at each other. It's yes. awful. <laughs> yeah, that ad, when I first saw it, I was like, God, that's disgusting. And then after seeing it a couple of times, like, goodness gracious, that ad is well, <laughs> Let's recap the ad real quick. So the, the Trump Super PAC put out an ad of an actor that was supposed to be DeSantis eating pudding with his fingers, which is something that's been reported that supposedly right, likes right, to eat pudding. Right. Oh, who knows? But it's kind of like they're trying to drive this, like, whole, the guy's a little weird type definition of him, it seems like. That's it. That's what they're trying to do. So that dynamic is interesting, right? Like, I think they shared the same base for a good bit, right? And until now. But you started to see this breaking of, and, and I'm not that heavily involved in Florida politics, which I try to focus on beer. Beer's like potholes. It's nonpartisan. Everyone drinks it. We could all drink and we could all figure our problems out over a beer. Usually we're kind of disagreeing with someone. Have a beer, either either you end up in a massive fistfight or, or or things or things get settled. Yeah, so we started to see this after 2018 going into 2020, and you know for the last two years you've had all these like executive committee, the the groups that elect the local committee members, and they constantly had these races where like there was a Trump person and there was a DeSantis person. Some friends of mine would tell me this: Hey, things are getting a little tense, and you know so and so, you know the governor is pretty hardcore about his supporters and the Trump people are hardcore about their supporters. And so this was sort of coming, right? Like folks that don't see it or, or are not from here, they, they were like, wow, I can't believe that this huge fight broke out. It was inevitable. And then there's always personalities and all sorts of other behind the scenes stuff that happens. But look, at the end of the day, you know, the president's right for, for his sort of reelection, right? Or, or wanted to get elected once again. Mm-hmm. And the governor hasn't announced, but it seems like he's doing everything that he's going to do to run. So this is part part for the course when it comes to presidential primaries. I mean, they, lately, and I think the last 10 years or 20 years, it's on. It's a full context sport. As a guy who's done work in over 90 congressional districts, if you take out the pudding element of that ad, that looks like every DCCC ad yeah. that I saw <laughs> from like 2010 to 2017. Yeah. I mean... I've seen that ad running from Democrats forever. But tell them why, though, Kochel. And this is actually really relevant to Florida, the electorate. Well, sure. It's aimed at retirees. It's tried to turn people off of plans from, you know, going back to Paul Ryan's days, even pre-steeper days when he wanted to reform entitlements, you know. And, of course, you know, what people don't realize, Trump's basically called Social Security, Medicare, and sort of off limits to talk about what the truth is, is going to go bankrupt in 2032. So we got to have the conversation at some point. We've all seen this ad run at our candidates around the country. And 
I thought that was kind of the most amazing thing about it. I get that the pudding optic is, is really what what kind of pulls you into it. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi could have run that ad. Who's the former DNC chair that lives down there? I forget her name. Uh, Washington uh, Schultz. Yeah, Teddy Washington yeah, really, Schultz. It, it, it actually felt that way. You're absolutely right. It felt like one of those DCCC hit ads. It's what you see now in national level campaigns and congressional yeah. races. <laughs> What's your sense of, though, where the Florida Republicans, you know, that you're selling? Uh, that's a good question, man. I mean, I think there's a split. Man, this is a hard one. It's it's tough. This is going to be a tough one to predate. A lot of folks three months ago were saying it's inevitable. If the governor runs, he's going to have a clear path and get everybody out of the race. And Trump jumps in and post uh, midterm seems to have faltered. But then now is getting this bump, if you want to call it that, sympathy bump from what happened in New York, plus this negative narrative that's evolved with Governor DeSantis and his, you know, sort of individual one-on-one interactions. And, and that stuff is now looking like it's giving him some momentum. But I, I don't think these things are going to matter. I mean, David actually can speak to this better than me. I don't think these things are going to matter when we get to the Iowa State Fair in August, right, David? Or when we get into the caucuses in January. It's going to be a completely different landscape. I don't think it's going to look anything like this. So Florida Republicans are are somewhat torn. I would say today, I'd probably still give an edge to the governor, even though I know politically it might not, or the optics might not look that way, because, you know, he, he just won a, an election with right. the highest margins of any governor, including Governor Bush, who had had a, a great election back in 02. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he blew everyone out of the water 20 years later. And that matters. Like, they just voted for him, right? But at the same time, Trump had a outrageous turnout two years before so i think most florida republicans probably feel like they this shouldn't be happening like they probably hate the fact that their governor and the president they voted for are at each other's necks and it's public it's like nobody wants their laundry aired out in the street and folks you know fighting this way but i think what's really going to matter is what the early state voters have to say a year from now or eight months from now this is the point i always make the national polls right now are so completely meaningless nobody knows anything until you see Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, really start to move the national narrative and the numbers will follow. In 2012, when I did the Romney campaign, there were six different people leading the Iowa caucuses right up until caucus day. The national numbers are all based on fame and name ID and kind of what you're watching on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or whatever. The real ball game is is how do they perform when they hit a state? And I think DeSantis has an opportunity in Iowa to, to basically say, look, I can, you know, First of all, the Iowa story, Kim Reynolds, who, same thing, she won by two and a half, three points in 2018, and she wins by 19 in 2020. It's a lot of the same reason, because she bucked the COVID hawks and the kind of DC narrative on how to respond to COVID. We got our schools open. We opened up our businesses. And in Iowa, that was what the people wanted. And DeSantis has a pretty similar message, and he brought that message to Iowa on the book tour, and it was well-received there. And and I don't think people are reading what somebody at the Atlantic thinks about Donald Trump getting more Florida you know, members of Congress to endorse him. I do think that these early states, they decide late, they pay attention to who's coming and who isn't coming, and, you know, they make a decision based on all of that. So, yeah, you know, we'll see. Yeah, and look, and I think there's a reality, too. Republicans are always good about wanting to win. Like, we are very decisive when it comes to, okay, at some point, we're going to make decisions, even if we're not comfortable with them, or move away from someone because of that. And this is now me maybe looking at my crystal ball, if if I had one. I think one of the challenges that we're going to have as we get closer and closer to this election day with President Trump in particular is going to be this notion that, okay, he might be able to pull this off, and he might be able to make it competitive with Joe Biden, but can he really win? And if he does win, can he also make sure that he has a Senate and a House? 
I think that's going to be a major drawback. And it might be way off base. It's early. But as we get closer and closer, it might come down to that. And folks might make their decision based on the fact that they think this guy might not necessarily be able to get us there. And he might not be able to get us a Republican House and Senate, which is what we really need in order to bring about significant policy change. So we'll see. All those things will factor in, but we're nowhere near that now. And right now is just sort of uh, get the popcorn and watch the pudding fly. Let the pudding fly. It's going to fly. Put some context to this too, just for our listeners. The Florida primary will be March 19th. So it comes a little yeah. later. So after the early states will be after Super Tuesday. At this point, it's as plausible as almost any other scenario that, you know, this race could be a head-to-head between DeSantis and Trump at that point. This could be an amazing moment for the state of Florida to choose between those two in mid-March of next year, something to definitely keep an eye on. It's fascinating to me. We've had this whole conversation. We've mentioned all these names that are dominant American politics from Florida, and yet the name we haven't mentioned, someone who ran for president in 2016, used to be you know, top of mind when talking about rising Republican stars is Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. And again, as much as you can kind of relate this to what you think yeah. the sense of people in South Florida are, particularly Republican voters, how do you think Marco stands with them these days? I think he's in good standing overall. I mean, look, I, you know, when you go through a national campaign and you put up with the hits and the attacks, and that, that stuff takes its toll both in your public perception and also physically and mentally, right? But at the same time, I give Senator Rubio a ton of credit, man. He went back to D.C. after that presidential race, gets reelected in the Senate, and then decides to double down and become an awesome senator. And during those years, from 2016 to 2020, when it came to foreign policy, especially foreign policy in Latin America, I describe Marco Rubio as the de facto Secretary of State. Like, he was knee-deep, if not more than knee-deep, in guiding the policy pushing back. And that's a big issue here in Miami, right? We have a community of exiles and immigrants from all over the world, but from especially with a narrative from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, that fled communism, right? So these things are, are real. This isn't just articles that you read or stories that you hear. You live it. It's your neighbors. It's your parents. It's your, you know, your relatives. So he fought for those principles. I think he did a great job. So he's probably happy. I'm, I'm guessing I haven't asked him this question that he's not in the mix in this cycle because it's going to be another probably worse than what we saw in 2016 from a primary standpoint. So that that would be Mike Evans. Mm-hmm. He's also very young. I'm going to guess Marco's probably early to mid-50s now. He's got at least another 20 years before he could, <laughs> he could get elected. I mean, look at Joe Biden, right? The guy was yeah, like, Joe Biden, he, he can run in 35 years. So maybe you see a Marco Rubio 2052 or, you know, who knows? <laughs> I think he's got a bright future. He's still a very capable politician, right? Those skills that he had, they're still there, the intangibles. Someday he decides to run for governor or something. Who knows what comes next for him? All right, so one thing we like to do on this podcast, Jose, is we like to eat a couple cocktails. In your case, it'll be beers named after a couple of famous local politicians. Well, obviously, if you've talked about Trump and DeSantis throughout this entire pod. So you're going to have to give us your signature beer the Trump and the signature beer, oh, the DeSantis. Man. Let's start with the DeSantis. Why don't we go with the you know the young upstart first? So let me think about all right. So if I if I were to say a DeSantis beer, I'd go with like a Belgian farmhouse or like a fruited sour. <laughs> so it's one of those beers that when you first the first sip you take, you're like, good goodness, I don't know if I could drink this thing. Then you have a second sip, then you have a third sip, and suddenly you realize, holy smokes, that's pretty good. I, I like the way that tastes. So with Governor DeSantis, it takes a couple of, you know, a, a couple of sips to get there. You're like, wow, you know, after a while, you're like, all right, I, I like the policy. I like the, the way he's governing, but it's maybe a little tough on the front end. The DeSantis Fruit and Sour wins by a half a point in 2018 and then grows on you and wins by 20 points in 2020. 
that's, that's what I'm saying, right? Like all this, that's what I'm saying. And I got to think DeSantis might now have legislation pending that says, don't say fruited. <laughs> yeah, we actually have a beer bill in Tallahassee. Like, hopefully this runs after session ends. <laughs> I saw an interview where he was talking a story about drinking Guinness in Ireland and really enjoying it, which is a good beer. I like it. All right. So then let's get to the Trump. Man, the Trump, you know, it's got to be something high ABV. Because at the end of the day, after you drink it, it's a party. You're going to have a lot of fun. So it's got to be like either one of those really dank Imperial IPAs, right? When you take a sniff of it, you're like, good Lord, it smells like, you know, somebody just poured a pound of pot in your IPA. It's like, <laughs> thinking, it's, it's musty. There's only one reason you're drinking that beer. You're about to go out and you're looking to have a, a lot of fun. Maybe break a few things. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty good. What I was saying is as we get closer to Florida really happening in March of next year, maybe we'll have you back on. We can talk about all these predictions way back we here. Get you guys... Yeah. Get you guys down here, do a live show from the tap room. You know, every bar we talk to, we want to go to, but this is going to have to move up on the to-do list, Cotchel, for an in-person. Maybe well, maybe we do a little grand opening it. on the new tap room. We got to get I Jeb think it's in, necessary, by the way. We'll oh, yeah. Jeb would be a part of the party. Yeah. We'll get both of them, Big Jeb and uh, and Little Jeb. Then you know it's a party. Plug again where the new room's going to be. Give out the address. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they can find Bay. you in a couple months. Thank you. Or next Thanks month. A lot, man. It's uh, Biscuit Bay Brewing Company. We are at 100 Northeast First Avenue. So it's the corner of First and First Northeast historic building downtown Miami. Looking forward to our taproom grand opening in June. And should be a fun place to hang out, drink some great beer. You know, you can talk politics or you, or you can talk about something else. There's a lot to talk about in Miami these days. I want to meet more people from San Francisco that are very happy that they moved. They might not admit <laughs> it to their friends back in San Francisco. They're probably like, oh, I've been over here. This is tough, man. These Floridians. But locally, love it. Go Marlins, beat the Dodgers whenever you face them. Thanks for coming on, Jose. We appreciate you jumping on. And it's good to see you again, my friend. Be good. So thanks to Jose Maya from Miami. That was a fun interview, Rob. Yeah, guy who knows a little bit about politics, of course, because yeah, he's been around it quite a bit. What stood out for you today? Well, Miami stands out. There's so many narratives out there about cities in decline, Chicago, San Francisco, L.A., and homelessness. And yet Miami is the city it seems like they all want to be. They don't have a huge homelessness problem. They don't have a huge crime problem. They've done police reform because they had problems a few decades ago. They're drawing on that expertise to fix places like Ferguson, Missouri, which Jose alluded to. And what's interesting to me about this is it doesn't fit this narrative that big blue state politicians like my governor, Gavin Newsom, are desperately out there pushing, which is that blue states are where people want to be instead of red states. And I love that he had the antidote of the San Franciscans who are like, yeah, we were a little nervous about coming down here to the red state, but they love it. Because life is good, and yeah. the government isn't up in their stuff, and crime isn't a huge issue, and their kids' schools are open. You know, there was a poll several months ago that, you know, were asked Americans, where would you rather live, California or Florida? And it was 5743 Florida. And I just think this is a narrative that gets lost that's not, you know, with especially with you know, what we call the mainstream media. They're just not picking up on the fact that there's a reason DeSantis got reelected by 20 points. People love living in that place. And I got to tell you, we've all been to Florida. It's humid. It stinks. It has a smell and honest. You know, you go north of Orlando, you might as well be in southern Georgia. You know, it's not a whole lot that I like to be around as a Californian. 
but people are flocking to it. It's about governance for sure. That's why they like being there. And I'd love to do a podcast based on Austin because a lot of the same thing. I know it's a blue city, still a blue city, but it's in a red state. And a lot of the red state policy kind of seeps down into- into Rains in the sky in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We'll do Austin. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for this one, Rob. This is a great episode. And uh, yeah, thanks again to Jose Maia of Biscayne Bay Brewing. I'm glad we fit that out. I hope people learn something about a part of the country that gets talked about, but we don't necessarily know about from the ground. Reminds me a lot of the Chicago episode we had about a month ago. So, hey, thanks everyone for tuning in. We know it was a little longer this week. Thanks for staying with us. But join us next week when we pull the bar stool at another politically and culturally important state and city in this great country and talk to a bartender about what the locals are drinking and what they're saying. Until then, cheers, Godzel. Cheers, Rob. Dodgers took three out of four from the Cubs. Oh, it's true. It sucks. Highball Politics is a podcast presentation of Highball Media. Executive producers are David Kochel and me, Rob Stutzman. Our producer is Miranda Perrin. Please send your bartender nominations and any questions to highballpolitics at gmail.com. And find us on social media. We're at Highball Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And if you were brave enough to make this week's signature cocktail, please remember to tag your picks of this week's with the hashtag Highball Podcast. And if you want to support our show, please subscribe to Highball Politics wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. And please share this episode with your friends. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.